0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. I only realized today that this topic is probably um, slightly controversial and slightly provocative. Uh, When I spoke to a patient I saw yesterday, and I mentioned that I'm going to talk about this topic, uh, he said, knowing that I'm working on the brain and working using brain imaging, he said to me, you're not going to tell them it's all in their head, are you? <laughs> and, and I could see, you know, that he's, he was probably not the only patient who's heard that before. And some of you might relate to that um, when you see your doctor and he can't find anything where your pain problem comes from. He says, well, it's all in your head. And you think, I'm not making it up. It really hurts. Uh, So something must be wrong with me. Something must be wrong with my body. And what I would like to tell you and show you in the next 45 minutes is that it has to be in your brain. Pain comes from the brain. We can't feel pain if we don't have any brain. And that's absolutely normal. But that doesn't have anything to do with you making it up. But the brain is a critical part of of the way how we perceive pain. So what I'm going to talk about is about beliefs. And beliefs, again, are something very normal. When we experience something that is difficult for us, or actually any type of experience, we are trying to make sense out of that experience, don't we? So we try to understand where it comes from. And particularly if it is unpleasant, we try to find out how we can stop it. So beliefs around it, beliefs about where the pain comes from and what we can do about it, are absolutely normal. And I would like to show you how these beliefs can affect the way we perceive pain. That will be one part of the talk. And the other one um, will address the question if these beliefs can be utilized and can be used to help us in coping with pain plus also to understand why sometimes pain management can go wrong when the beliefs get in the way. Let me start with a very simple question. Can expectations, and I will use expectations and beliefs synonymously here, can expectations uh, make pain worse? So when you, for instance, that's the classical example, you go to the dentist and By definition, going to the dentist is very pleasant. (laughs) When you go there, you expect that to be painful, don't you, when they have to do something about it, You might be lucky and just get out and everything is okay, but if they have to drill, for instance, or they have to do any major work, it's usually, let's say, the least unpleasant. Um, Can that make the pain worse, or would you be better off if you wouldn't? if you wouldn't be uh, so afraid of going to the dentist. Well, we certainly know that negative expectations can make your pain worse. And let me show you a very simple example. This is um, an experiment, but you can also find that in clinical practice. This is uh, a study a colleague of mine did quite a while ago, over 10 years ago now, where he uh, inflicted pain on these Um, healthy volunteers, we have to do that to learn about pain and how the brain, in this case, is processing pain. And he either used a low temperature stimulation that wasn't particularly painful, you can see that here, low temperature, low temperature, or a high temperature that was really nasty and quite painful. And before he applied these stimuli, he warned his poor participants. He either showed them a square and a square meant you don't know what you're going to get. It might be really painful, the high temperature stimulation, or if you're lucky, you only get the low temperature stimulation, but we don't know, so an ambiguous cue. And in the other condition, he showed them a triangle, and this triangle meant you're safe, you would only get the low temperature stimulation. And what he wanted to know was when he applied the low temperature stimulation in this condition, where people were more afraid because they didn't know what would come, would they experience the, the stimulation as more painful compared to the safe condition? And they did. Just look at this, I will highlight that for you so that it's a bit easier. So that was a low temperature stimulation in the condition where they felt safe And this is exactly the same stimulation, the same temperature, when people were afraid that they also might get the high temperature stimulation. And they were asked to give a rating uh, between zero and 10. 10 meant it was absolutely, it was horrific. It was enormously painful. And zero meant it wasn't painful at all. And as you can see here, depending on the context and what people were thinking they would get, The rating was different. That tells us, to start with, that it's not just what comes in through your senses that determines how you perceive it and how painful it is, but it is also what you fear what you might get. And the next question is then, can these negative expectations make something painful that would normally not be painful. So can it not only make the pain worse when it's there already, but can it push an an experience over that edge and make something painful that would normally be just, for instance, a warm sensation? And it can. This is an experiment I did in, in Oxford. And we used a very, very simple Paradigm here we used laser stimuli that can be painful, but we adjusted the the intensity of this laser pulse at a level where you would say it is just slightly painful. It's not enormously painful, but it's just on that threshold where it becomes painful. Okay. And the reason we used this threshold stimulation was that sometimes the stimulation would be categorized as painful. So it would cross that border and our participants would say, yeah, this was painful. And sometimes the same stimulation would be perceived as not painful. Then we applied another one and they would say, well, this one was painful, this one was painful. Yeah, this one was painful too, but no, this one wasn't painful. What is so nice about this type of stimulation is that they are physically absolutely identical, you always use the same laser intensity. But sometimes because you're distracted or whatever, it would be perceived as not painful, whereas other times exactly the same stimulation would hurt. So that later on we can compare all these RAT trials, so these stimuli that were categorized as painful, to those that were categorized as not painful although they are physically identical. But we used another sort of manipulation in this study. And we look at one of these trials before we applied these stimuli. We told our participants, and these were all healthy people, young students, we told them, oh, we have to test the properties of the skin first before we apply the stimulus because we want to make sure that you're really safe. That was actually not true. We used this information to introduce another interesting variable, and that is, we get back to this, the belief. We told them after we'd done this <coughs> test that was actually not a proper test, that six of these stimulation sites on the back of their foot were perfectly fine, and they had enough fat tissue underneath to tolerate the laser stimulus. Let's say these were the yellow sites, three yellow sites. And on these other remaining three sides, we told them, that is borderline. We can give it a try, but your skin might be a little bit too thin to tolerate the stimulation. So please tell us if you notice anything unusual. In fact, there was no difference between the yellow sides and the orange sides, right? It was always perfectly fine. And of course we have to get this through an, um, an ethics committee, so we have an ethics committee looking at it, and we really have to make sure that we don't harm people. Okay. But what we wanted to introduce was, when we told them that we would stimulate one of these potentially dangerous sites, that they would expect more pain. And this is exactly what happened, let me show you this. We asked them, after each stimulus, did you find it painful, yes or no? And we look at these, compared these low-fat sites, so these were the sides where we told them your skin is perfectly fine and you can easily tolerate the stimulation, compared to these three sites where they were expecting something potentially harmful. Again, the stimulation was completely identical. It was, and I'm using this phrase, all in their head. And you can see they are perfectly healthy. It doesn't have anything to do with them making it up. But they were getting their body ready for something that could be dangerous. And it is very adaptive. We need that. And what you can see here is that when we stimulated these high threat sites, they more often said, yeah, that was painful, compared to when we um, applied the same stimulation to the sites where they felt perfectly safe. And because I'm interested in the brain and I want to know how the brain is working that out, I'm going to show you what the brain was doing at that time. It brings up an area, and this is a slice through the brain, if I would cut my brain like that, and you can see the bits that were most active here, colored in orange and red and yellow. This brought up this idea of perceived threat brought up an area in the brain that is called the anterior insula. And that might not mean a lot to you, but we know a lot about the anterior insula. The anterior insula was most active when the stimulation was dangerous and it, when it was perceived as painful. And it wasn't particularly interested when we applied the stimulation to the safe sides so or when people weren't particularly afraid, and then also classified the stimulus as painful, as non-painful, sorry. And what is this region doing? We know this region from uh, studies on anxiety, so when we induce experimental anxiety, for instance, or when we um, ask people to go in a scanner who are known to have an anxiety disorder, this would be the part of the brain that would be heavily involved. This is a region that lights up. And it also does something very interesting that is happening in everybody, and that is called interceptive awareness. It's an interesting term, isn't it? So what is interceptive awareness? Let's do that. I will show you what it is. If you could all close your eyes for a second. And you turn the focus inwards, your focus inwards. And notice how you're sitting on the chair. If both sitting bones are touching the chair. If the weight is more on one side or on the other side. And just focus on your heartbeat for a second. And you can open your eyes and you just engage your anterior insula. This is a region that is interested in you scanning your body, you going through your body and checking if something is wrong. Okay, that would bring up this region. And what is it? what was it doing here? Well, this anterior insula, so this region that is involved in anxiety processing and introspection, starts talking, and that is what we found out with brain imaging, and I'm not going to go into details here. This region starts talking to a classical pain region. So this part of the brain, in the midline of the brain, would process pain-related information. But it doesn't do it in isolation, no. There's a region that starts talking to it, and it starts whispering there's something really dangerous coming up. And this is what the anterior insula is doing. And this region, the pain region, starts doing something really interesting. This region is becoming more sensitive. And when our laser stimuli hit the system and were applied, it was more responsive. It started firing much more when, it was, when the stimulation was threatening than when it was safe. So we have a crosstalk between an anxiety-related region that starts talking to a pain region and is making it more sensitive. This was the first evidence from brain imaging that showed that these two systems, the anxiety and introspective system and the pain system, aren't working independently, but they can exchange information. And let me show you another example this was a study I did when I was in London on perceived control. So another belief, do we think we have control over pain? And that was motivated by the work I did when I was in Germany doing my PhD, working with phantom limb pain patients. So patients who had lost an arm or a leg and still felt this missing limb and not only felt it, but it was painful. And what these patients often told me was that it was not so much the, um, the pain that bothered them so much, but that they couldn't stop it, that they didn't have anything at hand to make it better. And I thought, I have to look into that, and I have to find out what that is, that idea that we can control the pain, or the opposite, that we can't control it, and what does it do to the pain. So I had did a study on healthy volunteers again so these were again all students and I had three conditions I had a condition I called the self condition and in this condition I told these uh, participants that they would receive a painful stimulation in this case we, d- we used electrical stimuli they were quite nasty and so they sting quite a lot but they could stop the stimulation at any time and they thought they had enough They would just press a button, and the pain would stop immediately. So they had perfect control over pain. In the condition I called other, I told them, listen, you will be in the scanner, and we will scan your brain while you're experiencing the pain. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because there's another person sitting outside next to me in the control room, and whenever he or she wants to stop the pain, she or he would press the button, but you have to wait. It's awful, isn't it? <laughs> what do these people do for research? It was—it wasn't to do anything bad to the poor participants. It was to find out whether that makes a difference. And we had a third condition, I call the computer condition, where again they couldn't—they couldn't stop the pain. So the poor people in the scanner, in the brain scanner, couldn't stop the pain. But I told them it's a computer that just follows a random sequence. So it's not not another person stopping the pain, but a computer. And I wanted to know whether it makes a difference if you think you can control the pain or not. The trick about this one, this, this study, was that in all three conditions they actually got the same stimulation because there was no other person outside. Let's say they stopped the stimulation after 10 uh, stimuli in the self-condition. They would also get 10 in this condition and 10 in this condition. And the interesting thing, that was actually one of the most entertaining experiments <laughs> I did because um, before we, we run the study in the scanner, we have to do it outside because the, the scanner uh, experiments are enormously expensive, so you have to find out if your whole setup works first and We did that outside the scanner and I had male and female participants and I had an enormous problem an enormous problem with one of them with one of them losing control over the pain. Can you please put your hand up if you think the women were worse in losing control? <laughs> Okay, yeah, you all got it right. The men really had a hard time that they, not being able to control the pain. And when I got them out of the scanner, they said, I want to see that person. <laughs> and I said, there is no other person. You know? So I explained, as we do, I explained the whole setup and I explained that that was just a cover story. And they they got exactly what they chose and the self-condition, I couldn't believe it. So when I did the scanner, the scanner study, I only um, invited women. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe in gender differences before that, but this really taught me a lesson. Okay, let's have a look. When they get exactly the same stimulation in these conditions, does it make a difference? And for now, just to make it a little bit easier, I'm going to... Um, put these two together. I'm not going to make a difference but between these two where they couldn't control the pain, but I will report both of them as an externally controlled pain compared to the self-controlled pain. And here you can see the pain intensity ratings. So again, we asked these participants to let us know how intense the pain was when they were in the scanner in these different conditions. And you can see that when they could control the stimulation, the pain was less intense than when it was externally controlled, although it was physically completely identical. Yeah. So it's the belief about it, it's the belief about controllability, it's not the pain itself or the stimulation. It was the same, even slightly stronger for anxiety. We asked these participants to rate their anxiety, and you can see that they were much more anxious when they couldn't do anything about the pain, although the, the stimulation was completely identical. And I was particularly interested in the parts of the brain that help us to reduce the pain when we think we can control it. I was not so much interested in the negative side, but in the resources we have in the brain that help us to reduce the pain when we think it is controllable. And the regions we found were, again, two regions we know a lot about, and they are very much at the front of the brain. They have these enormously long names, but they don't matter, actually. One is called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal is that bit here. So here, this is where your eyes would be. Uh, That's the back of the brain. Um, And you can see that this part is very much in the front here. And then the other region is slightly lower down, uh, and that is called the ventralateral prefrontal cortex. What do these two regions do? Where they light up when you think you have something at hand to control the pain. And this is a region we know very well from anxiety studies when we teach participants a technique to distance them from whatever they find threatening, to just observe it, for instance, and not get too much into the emotion, into the anxiety they they experience. So this is a region that is directly involved involved in the modulation of the um, emotion you experience with pain. And this is a region that is uh, responsible for orchestrating exactly these brain responses. So this is sort of the boss in the brain, and that is governing and directing other regions, for instance, this one here, and it tells them what to do. But this is working out how you do it, and it has the master plan. That's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Let me show you another study. And I'm just going through the highlights of these studies. I'm not going to show you everything that went wrong, and a lot goes wrong along the way uh, until you've worked out how you can show this. This study on perceived control um, was very interesting because people differed a lot, as I said, in their experience, the experience they have when they lose control. Some find this very, very aversive, very unpleasant, and they were really struggling, and some didn't mind. And the ones that didn't mind a lot were, surprisingly, I've, I didn't know that by that time, but I learned that, were often highly religious. And when I asked them why they didn't mind that much, they said, well, it's, ultimately it's not about me anyway. There's a higher entity that is looking after me. I don't need to have control because there's somebody else who is who is holding everything together and that is in their uh, in their faith that this is god so i wanted to see whether religious faith can help us in coping with pain and just on the side we had a very hard time publishing this study because that was so political by this time yeah so we got lots of questions like does everybody have to become religious now? Who's better, Catholics or Protestants? (laughs) And we were not interested in this question. That is for other people to find out, but that was nothing we were interested in. What did we do? We invited two groups. One was a group of devoted Catholics. And why did we choose the Catholics? Um, We could have chosen Protestants, to be honest, but... What is very specific for, um, for Catholics is that they are very good in working with, with images. Yeah? So in this case, the picture of the Virgin Mary, everybody recognized her. And we thought we have to sort of help them in getting, with getting into this religious state. Um, so we show them a picture to help them with it. And we had a non-religious group. These were, and they're very easy to find in Oxford too, you can find very religious people in Oxford, but also very hardcore non-religious people, and these were proper agnostics, so they didn't believe in anything. Uh, And we had 12 of each, and we showed them also the picture of the Virgin Mary, but we also showed both groups uh, a picture that was similar in drawing style, so a young lady, um, but without the religious connotation. And you might recognize her, it's the lady with the ermine by Leonardo da Vinci, but we cut the ermine out, <laughs> well, so that we wouldn't distract people. We showed these pictures while we inflicted pain on these poor participants. And again, we used electrical stimuli, but they had the chance to look at these pictures. And obviously our idea was to find out if religious people benefited from looking at the Virgin Mary, why they underwent this painful stimulation. What did people say? We asked them again, please give us a rating for how intense the pain was. And the question, the first question was, do people show pain reduction when they look at one of the pictures? And yes, and as expected, the religious people rated the pain significantly lower when they were looking at the Virgin Mary. It was interesting, but sort of expected. And we also asked, which picture did you like better? Because we wanted to know if they just liked the picture better and were probably just distracted by the aesthetic features of the picture. And the religious group rated the Virgin Mary as more pleasant, I liked it better. And the secular group, the non-religious group, rated this uh, secular image more positive. But the question was, of course you could say, well, they guessed what it was all about. We wanted to see what the brain was doing, why they were experiencing the pain and looking at the pictures at the same time. And that is what I'm going to show you now. This was the religious group. And we looked at their brain responses to pain while they were looking at the Virgin Mary and subtracted from that the response to the pain when they were looking at the secular image. And what did we get? We get exactly the same region people involved when they had perceived control over pain. It was exactly the same region. So they do engage an area that is known to help us in coping with pain. And the activation in this region, so the the signal in this region, scaled with the pain reduction they experienced. What about the secular group? So for them, we looked at their preferred picture because we thought maybe they have exactly the same effect but they get it from looking at this secular picture and uh, compared it to the religious picture. And we didn't get anything. So this region, our ventral prefrontal cortex that helps us in coping with pain gets engaged when you tap into something that is meaningful for you. And that sounds very unspecific, right? <laughs> so in this case, it was the religious belief. People told us later on, that they related to Mary's suffering, for instance, why they experienced the pain. They felt closer to her in that experience and that changed the meaning of the pain. It lost its aversive character. Obviously, the question came up, does everybody have to be religious or become religious now, now that we've shown that it is so beneficial? And we can, I don't know, we can discuss that later on, Um, but The only thing we showed here was that, yes, people with a strong religious belief can engage a mechanism that is known to be beneficial for us. We know this region from other contexts. We know that from anxiety reduction, and we know that also from a context of placebo analgesia I'm going to talk about now. That is the last part of my topic, the last 10 minutes, uh, will be about the influence of beliefs on pain management. We know a lot about, let me before I show this one, let me just tell you that we've learned a lot about the influence of beliefs on pain management from, from placebo, from research on placebo. What is a placebo? Well, a placebo is any substance or procedure I administer, and I introduce that as something that helps you in coping with pain. It helps you with pain, but it doesn't have any active ingredient. A sugar pill, for instance. If I would give that to you and tell you take that, that's a very powerful painkiller, and it reduces your pain, you show a placebo effect, although you didn't take a painkiller. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that we that these beliefs, again, can engage the mechanisms, and that has been shown with brain imaging, but are very, very similar to those of, for instance, the brain on on a very strong opioid, so a very strong painkiller. The brain response looks almost identical when you take the opioid and when you take a placebo. Okay, it's the same mechanism. I would just like to show you one study that translated the research on placebo to real drugs. Because you could say, well, placebo, you can't give people placebo. That is not ethical. So they suffer from pain and you give them a sugar pill. You can't do that. But what I'm going to show you is that the same principles apply to real drugs. What did we do in this study? This is a study I did with a, Dear colleague and friend of mine, uh, Ulrike Bingel, when she was in Oxford for a year, uh, she's gone back to Germany, then a year later, went back. Um, What did we do? We used heat pain that was pretty high and pretty painful and applied that at this baseline time point. And people felt that that was quite strong. You will see that in the next slide. And then we introduced a condition we called the no-expectancy condition. What is a no-expectancy condition? A no-expectancy or hidden condition is a condition where we started the infusion of a painkiller. In this case, a very strong opioid, ramifentanil. But the participants, again, these were healthy participants, didn't know that we had already started the infusion. Obviously, they had to consent to us giving them the drug anyway. But um, they didn't know exactly when they would get the painkiller. So they were not informed about the time point. Why did we do that? Well in this case we wanted to know what the drug does to your pain if you don't know that you are on the drug. Okay, That is something you might get when you are unconscious and you get a painkiller. But it is also something you get if you don't understand what the drug is doing to you. Okay? This is a hidden application. So you might benefit from the pharmacological properties of the drug, which is why the pharmaceutical company is inventing these drugs, but you don't know what to expect from the drug. Okay? And then in the next condition, we told our participants... Now we're going to start the infusion, and now you will get this powerful painkiller. Okay? So we introduced on top of the real drug the expectation or the belief that they would get pain relief. And in the last condition, we told the participants, now we have to stop the opioid, the drug. And what you might experience is quite a strong rebound pain, so the pain might come back. In fact, they were on the same drug throughout these three conditions, these three time points. It was a constant concentration of a very strong painkiller. So the question was, how would they experience the same drug in the same concentration depending on the beliefs they had, depending on the expectations? And this is what we got This is the baseline, so you can see this is a scale from zero, which means it's not painful at all, to 100, which means that is unbearable pain. The pain was pretty high, around 63, I think, was it. And after this baseline measurement to see where the pain would be without any treatment and without any expectations, we started the painkiller, but the participants didn't know it. Okay. And we asked them again, how painful is this stimulation now? And you can see that the pain ratings went down, which is good to know. So this is what the drug is doing, if you want it or not, <laughs> you get pain reduction. Okay? But the interesting thing happened here, between this time point, when they were already on the drug, and didn't know about it, to here, when we told them, now we're going to start... The infusion. You can double the effect. You can double the effect simply by telling them, by telling these participants, that they would get a painkiller now. Although they were already on it. It was already in their blood. It was already they were already on the drug. Okay. You can double the effect. And then when we told them now we have to stop the stimulation and you might experience pain, although We didn't stop it. They were still on the drug. The perceived pain went almost up to baseline again. So to the level they experienced without any drug. What does that mean? It leaves us, I think, with a lot of question marks. First of all, it tells us, yes, a drug has an effect, if you want it or not. But there's a huge potential in telling people what the drug is actually doing, how they can benefit from the drug. Something we don't do very often, unfortunately. And when we look at the brain, what the brain was doing when we uh, added the positive expectations to the pharmacological effect of the drug, we can again see this prefrontal area we've seen before Uh, in the perceived control study, a region that helps us in coping with pain. It's always the same mechanism, but you can activate it. You can activate this brain mechanism in different ways. Whether you think you have control over pain, whether you get a real drug, whether you think you're on the drug, you always end up with the same activation, with the same mechanism in the brain. So let me summarize that. Um, I have one more slide, but let me just summarize uh, what I've talked about today. There is a pain network in the brain, and coming back to this uh, initial uh, idea of whether it's all in your brain, of course, I've only spoken about a very small aspect of pain experience, and of course there are things happening in the periphery, in your skin, in your bones, that trigger this pain system. Any damage, any tissue damage, any degeneration is likely to cause you pain. There's no no doubt about that. And the the part of the brain, and I haven't spoken about that today, uh, that deals with this incoming information from below, is that green system. That is where we experience pain, where we process nociceptive information, so pain-related information. But this system isn't immune and insensitive to influences from your thoughts and your emotions. But it is highly influenced by the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, (laughs) the one that is orchestrating everything that has to do with thoughts and feelings, and this ventrolateral prefrontal cortex that directly helps you in coping with pain. And they start communicating to the pain system so they don't work in isolation either. And I hope I have convinced you that when we say it is in your head, it doesn't mean you're making it up. It means pain is generated in the brain. Pain doesn't start in your foot even though the foot hurts. It's the brain that creates that overall sensation. And your feelings and your thoughts are an essential part of that sensation. They are not something only crazy people experience, but everybody's trying to make sense out of pain. And the more we work with that, the more we understand it, the more we can create and design new ways of coping with pain. And a very simple one is to understand this, and for your doctors to help you by giving you the right information. And I would leave you, want to leave you with one more thought which is, I think, quite worrying when we think of these previous results. That 50% of the patients leave their doctor and don't understand what the treatment is about. So they're giving pills, they're giving injections, They are given surgery, so they undergo massive, invasive procedures. And very often they don't understand what is happening, why they get it. And that is not their fault. So everybody who treats patients, and you who who go and see their doctors, ask for information. The more you understand it, the better it is. Thank you. What's happening when you're asleep? Mm. Good question. Yeah. Well, that is one of the, I think, unanswered questions: to what an extent you experience pain. You might experience the ongoing nociceptive processing. So let's say, for instance, you have tissue damage in your foot. The information would still be passed on to your brain. And when they exceed a certain threshold you would wake up and then you would experience pain. But the relationship between pain and sleep is not really well understood. We've started working on that in Oxford now um, because pain is enormously disruptive to the sleep pattern that we understand. So you don't go into these very deep and restorative um, sleep phases. Um, but we have to learn much more about it. That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <coughs> Do you have an opinion about pain threshold high and low in individuals? Yeah, it varies enormously. That, that, that is something I can definitely say. And the pain threshold, so the level... The the, um, level of intensity of the stimulation, where I would say that is painful now, um, is determined by a lot of factors. So it's obviously, first of all, the skin uh, that is really true. So the fat tissue is quite thick. uh, That is on top of the nose receptors, for instance. Um, Whether there is. how your whole setup is, you know, your, your um, um, the fibers that are connecting the periphery to the brain, um, the way the brain is wired up, there are lots of factors that influence it, but also there are contextual factors. So even if I would do, would try to work out your threshold and I would invite you on three different days, your threshold could be completely different. So it varies a lot depending on the setup of that person, which means the anatomy of that person, but also depending on the context of that particular day. What's the connection between sport and pain? For example, rowers go through a lot of pain mm-hmm. and our son once broke his wrist playing rugby and didn't notice yeah. until the game was over. Right. Yeah, yeah, that is a fantastic example. You know, when we are pain is only we only notice pain when there's nothing more urgent to deal with. If there's something, if you want to win that race or that whatever match, um, um, then you don't have the time to deal with pain. Later on, you would get it. And for instance, your endogenous opioids would help you to do that. They would dampen down the pain while you're in that critical situation. We know that from people, for instance, also who've gone uh, to war in a battle situation where they have to make it to safety first. And only then, when they felt safe, they would experience the pain. Another interesting aspect of that question is, uh, does sport help us um, to be more tolerant to pain? And obviously that is the case. So when you undergo, um, when when you experience injuries in the sports context, they are not related to something you might associate with a progressive disease. It's completely different. It's in a comp- competitive setting. Yeah. Um, what it does to you long term, that is another question. So if, you, if you've experienced a lot of injuries, for instance, it, whether that sets you up to be more um, sensitive over time, that is a question that hasn't been answered yet, but that's a, yeah, it's an interesting aspect. Maybe. I think that would be the next step. So in this case, we chose the most box-standard drug, yeah, and one nobody would argue with. Like nobody would say this is not a painkiller. With well, the more alternative approaches, we we fear that people would say, well, what do you expect? Yeah, that is acupuncture. That is, I absolutely believe that they have analgesic properties, but we wanted to use something that is as classical textbook pain management as possible. And then, obviously, we have to follow up on that and do more experiments to see if, if other drugs are equally modulated and other approaches are equally modulated, I believe. Yeah. Good point. How does it all apply in terms of chronic pain? Because what you've been doing is mostly experiments at a very short-term pain. Yeah. Do the um, passages of the brain or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. the Yeah, good question. Like yeah, 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 very interesting question. That is true. We do uh, we do, do a lot of um, experiments in health volunteers simply because we want to um, understand the mechanisms in a very controlled setting first before we go into these very precious patient um, samples. Um, but the pain in chronic pain patients and the processing is a bit different so you can't directly translate what we what we found in healthy volunteers into patient populations. One aspect we do see a lot, and that actually strengthens the point I was making even more, is that the shift, we see a shift in chronic pain patients from this pure sensory processing, so something where you would want to find out where the pain is, what the quality is, uh, how intense it is, to... Emotional processing. So we see a lot of activation in regions of the brain that are involved in uh, processing of emotions and less this factual processing. Because the patients have worked that out, right? So if your pain has been in the foot for 20 years, you don't need to work that out again every day. You know know that. But what what you're still trying to process is what that means for your life. And how it affects you. That is is something. If there's one thing that is clear about the difference between experimental short lasting pain and pain in chronic pain patients, is that there's a shift away from sensory processing processing to effective processing. Last question was later. later. Actually, I will ask (laughs) it. Why, if you've got consenting adults, would it be unethical to to tell them that they were having you know, a pain-killing drug rather than sugar, if they really are consenting adults? Mm-hmm. You're saying to them that you know this is this is something which we we really want to check out. Mm-hmm. And you would give them a sugar pill instead of it. Yeah, we've started doing that, and not to not not to. Um, for the sake of deception, but to work with this mechanism. Mm. It's very difficult because ethics committees see that very critical. They, they're, they're way, they, they argue that, well, if there is a treatment that helps people, you're not allowed to withhold it. But that, that last experiment was not with people who had genuine pain No, no. What we do, no, no, what we do is we tell them this is as much a powerful pain uh, a mechanism as the one you get from the drug, just without the side effects. Give it a go, try it out. If you don't benefit, we're more than happy to go back to drugs. Yeah. But um, the question is sometimes whether people need the idea that they are on a drug. Let me just give you a very brief example just just 1 minute when you when you apply a placebo and people benefit from it they get pain reduction although they just got a sugar pill and you told them afterwards what we gave you was a sugar pill it stops working in 50% okay because sometimes we need this it's not me it's something it's the pill that does it okay for the other 50% it keeps working and they think that's brilliant. I even did it myself. I don't need the drug. <laughs> yeah. But we still have to work that out, who is in which group. <laughs> <laughs> right. One more question, gentlemen. Yes, I've been told that the body can only cope with one pain at a time. And if you have two pains, then one neutralizes the other. Is that true? That is true, yeah. It's very interesting. I, I met a chap who had a heart attack. And mm. he, he was on an airfield miles from anywhere. Pain on himself so that you could cope to get back to his car.: too. Right,, yeah, right. That's very interesting. It doesn't always work, I have to tell you, when I don't know who's experienced labor pain. It's a very intense pain. When I was in labor pain, they came with this TENS machine, which is supposed to give you just this prickle sensation, and I thought, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> so it has to be strong enough. Yeah. so when it 's strong enough to counteract your primary pain yeah you can you, you, you won 't experience it as much at least you can reduce it you can reduce, uh, so reduce it. it 's a, a very interesting mechanism that is based basically on your endogenous modulatory system so the, your own system that helps you in coping with pain and that is based on opioids, so you would release opioids in your brain, that would then dampen down the pain, the first pain. And that is simply because it's triggered, the whole system is triggered by the first pain but also occupied by the second one. As I said, it doesn't always work. It, it only works under certain conditions um, and it, it doesn't work in everybody. So you have to really have your endogenous, uh, endogenous pain inhibitory system in place uh, to be able to use that mechanism. Right, well, this is a first. I've done this job for a long time, and I've never had a lecture where I could say with confidence that every single person in this room has experienced the subject of the lecture. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, not sure how popular um, I, my partner would be if my husband. If you tell me when I was in that it's, it's all in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much.